morning. You'll find in your bulletin a blue insert, and this insert roughly details the sermon series that I'm beginning this morning in the Epistle of James, which will take us through the summer. And it's a blessing for me to begin this sermon series with you, having devoted the better part of all of last year in studying this epistle. And the elders of the church have given me a tremendous opportunity in my own studies, and I am grateful for that. As I begin this morning, I want to offer the, uh, this observation that in a different generation, Christianity was not observed or viewed with the suspicion that it is today. Many who think about missionary trends have made this observation, and to cite one recent example, Pastor Tim Keller notes that we are entering a new era, quote, in which many places in the West, there is not only no social benefit to being a Christian, but an actual social cost to espousing faith. Culture is becoming more actively hostile toward Christian belief and practices all the time. So being a Christian, in short, isn't as easy today, at least in the West, as it was 30 or 40 years ago. If you want to be a believer these days, you really have to mean it. It goes against the grain of almost everything that our society stands for. This is, in that sense, a negative world for the faith. And in this negative world, you will likely pay a price, especially, I feel, if you're young, in order to hold to the faith. As negative a world as Keller describes, however, it's actually not that different from the world of the Bible. If you think about it, then, as now, if you wanted to get along in society, the way to do it was not as a Christian. Christian belief in the first century as today did not fit within the dominant narrative of what it looked like in order to be successful or important or meaningful or have influence or affluence. Given that this was the case in the first century, it would not come to any surprise to followers of Jesus that it is hard to stay on the path. If all around you, every message that you're getting from every source of cultural information is pulling you away from Jesus, you wouldn't be surprised to discover that it's hard to follow Jesus in such a society. to stick with Jesus' teaching, to gather with Christians and live out a uniquely Christian witness together, which is what it means to be a part of the church. So just as today, first century Christians wrestled with questions like, how do I live faithfully as a follower of Jesus in a hostile world? Even more so, when to be a Christian meant that you were alienating yourselves from not only Jews, who may have been your own family in the first century, because all the initial Christians were Jewish, 
and from Gentiles, Rome was the dominant political power in the first century, but had no patience for the Christian God. This is the climate in which the epistle of James was written. And so as I mentioned, we kick off a new series this morning in this book. And this morning's message is from just one verse in James, the first verse. And in this small portion of God's word, I want to show you three things, or really ask three questions. What is the book of James? Who is James? And what can you expect to learn from this letter about how to live your life in a hostile world? Let's begin then by reading our scripture portion this morning and asking God to bless the preaching of his word. This is God's eternal and infallible word, James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we consider this portion of your holy word, we ask that you would enable the words of my mouth and the thoughts and questions and reflections of each one of our hearts to be pleasing in your sight. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first question is, what is the book of James? We see by the way that James begins and by the way that it ends in the last five or six verses of the letter that James writes a general pastoral letter. I want to look at these two elements. First, it's a general letter. By the way that the first line of this document is worded, it shows us that we are actually reading a letter, also known as an epistle. Letter writing in the ancient world was an important form of communication. In the epistle of James, it is a general letter whose audience is not really very well known. As a result, it is a general letter. Sometimes it's known as a Catholic letter, which means it's covering a general region of the world. Wherever the churches are that James is addressing, one thing that they have in common is that they live in a world that's hostile to God and they're struggling to keep the faith finding it difficult to believe the promises of God and staying on the path of following Jesus. So he writes a general letter, and it's, because it's a general letter, it's intended to be circulated amongst any number of churches any number, in any number of cities in the ancient world. But what kind of letter is it? People get letters from friends at this time of year, and we get lots of letters, and we often don't reply to these Christmas letters that we get, but this year we're sending a New Year's card, so we're excited about that big accomplishment for our family. But James isn't writing a general newsy sort of update in this letter. It's a pastoral letter, and it's designed to instruct in the faith as a result. We know this because as you read the book, there's a large number of imperatives. Do this, don't do that. He's trying to get our attention throughout the letter. Pay attention to this. Take note of this. He's interacting with our thoughts in the letter. You might think this. That would be wrong. You might not think this. That would be right. In fact, there are more imperatives or commands in the book of James than any other book in the New Testament. But James also contains some of the most encouraging words in the New Testament as well. 
So what makes this a pastoral letter is that it combines both comfort and challenge, which is what pastoral care should do. In this sense, James itself is a little bit like a sermon. In fact, some people feel it may be an instance of a written sermon. Written to a broad group of people, Christians in the first century scattered in a number of places who are being tempted to compromise their faith or, in some cases, may have already given up some crucial elements of living a distinctively Christian lifestyle in a negative society. Well, that's my first question. What is the book of James? The second one is, who is James? Having seen what we have before us, which is a general pastoral letter, who is this person who's writing it? There's two answers to the question that we need to consider. First of all, the text tells us that James is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The author whose name is James describes himself as a servant both of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. God and the Lord Jesus Christ are the Lord and God of his life. And by calling himself a servant, he is describing himself in a position of submission, obedience, dependence, and following the Lord Jesus Christ. James, the author, wants you to know that right away, the basis for him writing this letter and everything he's about to say is tied up with his identity as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This means that the pastoral instructions or commands that James gives us in this letter aren't just his own opinion. He's not just sharing some pious advice or giving some sort of pages out of the playbook of his experience. He's actually claiming to speak on behalf of and in the name of and with the voice and authority of Almighty God and His Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ. The commands in the epistle of James have their authority and strength and potency because James is telling you they come from God. And he wants you to listen to him, not because of who he is, but because he is a servant of the Lord. But it's interesting, just because James is a servant doesn't prevent him from speaking with authority. Sometimes we think of servants as mild, meek, oh, I'm but a humble servant. Don't look at me. I have nothing to say. I'm a worm. <laughs> but James proceeds, having introduced himself as a servant, to go on with boldness and authority and courage, making some of the strongest statements you can read anywhere in the New Testament outside of the Gospels in Jesus himself. In fact, James's identity as a servant seems to do the opposite. He's filled, if you might think of it this way, with so much humility that he ceases altogether to think of himself at all. He's so possessed with his identity in dependence on Almighty God that he doesn't give a rip what you think. I think this is teaching us something important about Christian leadership. Sometimes I pray, on occasion I pray, and I've heard other preachers pray this more frequently, Lord, may they forget the messenger and see only you. 
But I need that prayer too as a, as a preacher as I speak. I, I often think, what would it take if I completely forgot about myself and about you? And all I had in mind as I'm speaking is the honor and glory of God. And there are times when I'm preaching that, that I feel I, I, I move a little bit into sort of the foyer of what I call sometimes pulpit freedom. Freedom from the fear of man. Freedom from my own conscience, my own worries, doubts, anxieties. The power or force of strength of Christian leadership does not come from a person, but from the Lord Jesus Christ and persons who know the Lord Jesus Christ so well that they embody and enact him in their words and in their lifestyle in this world. This being the case, being a servant of Jesus will make you more, not less, bold to lead. When you speak in the name of the Lord, you will have more, not less, confidence with what you say. You won't say things like perhaps and maybe and I hope so and kind of sort of but you'll also be more, not less, concerned that your words are simply the words of Christ. And everything else, you'll mind your own business. You see, being a servant not only increases boldness in the things in which Jesus has spoken about, it increases, if I, will, if I may say this, hesitancy and some tentativeness on the things that Jesus doesn't seem to care anything about. So the mark or a feature of a faithful Christian ministry and a faithful Christian servant, which is to say, in this case, a preacher or a pastor, is someone who sticks to the main point and sticks, it, sticks with it with gusto. And on all other matters, he may be well informed and have formed his own views, but you won't find him jostling you off your penny, so to speak, on these secondary matters. So this then is the first aspect to the question, who is James? The author of James writes with the strength and confidence that comes from Jesus Christ and God and not from himself. He writes as a servant, in other words. But the second aspect in considering the question, who is James? Not only is he a servant, but which James is it? I'd say, well, what do you mean? Well, James, Greek and Hebrew would call him Jacob, is one of the most common names in the Bible. You can imagine why with the connection to the patriarch Jacob. It might have been in the top five most popular names for Jewish mothers to give their sons in the first century. We see no less than three and perhaps as many as five or six different Jameses in the New Testament, including Judas Iscariot's father is named James. Which James writes this book? Well, there are two Jameses in the role of the apostles. I don't know if you realize this. But amongst the twelve, two of them are named James or Jacob. One who most certainly didn't write this book is the lesser known of the two Jameses in the list of the twelve. It's James, son of Alphaeus. He's only mentioned in the list of the twelve 
and he never appears again in the Bible. We have no idea really who he is or if he ever went on to do anything else, although church tradition has it that all 11 of the faithful disciples died a martyr's death, and that may have been true of James, son of Alphaeus. So it's very likely that James, son of Alphaeus, did not write the epistle of James. The more famous James amongst the 12 is the son of Zebedee. He's famous for having been one of the first four men called to follow the Lord. He and his brother John were fishermen. Zebedee was the name of their father. He's also famous with Peter. So Peter, James, and John are amongst Jesus' three most intimate allies or friends in the 12. And they're regularly, these three are regularly singled out for unique experiences not given to the other nine. For instance, James, the son of Zebedee, his brother John and Peter are the only ones invited to join Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And likewise, those three men are the ones that are invited to join Jesus in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. But the son of Zebedee is also famous for being arrogant and a hothead. Jesus even nicknamed the brothers, I think appropriately, Sons of Thunder. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but I wonder if it wasn't this bold, over-boldness, if you will, of James, the son of Zebedee, that led him to be one of the first disciples to be killed for his faith in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. Because of his early death and that, that quirky personality that he seems to have in the scriptures, he doesn't seem to fit the picture that we have of this James <clears throat> for him to have written this epistle having died as early as he did, would have been almost impossible. The third candidate, and the last candidate I'll mention, the one I think actually did write this letter, is the brother of Jesus. Technically, James is the half-brother of Jesus because while he shared a similar mother, the same mother, Mary, he didn't share the same father because Jesus was born of a virgin. James, in fact, is the oldest of four younger brothers of Jesus. We learn this in Matthew 13, verse 55, where Matthew lists Jesus' younger brothers, James, Joseph, who's also called Joseph, Simon, and Judas, who is also called Jude. This James was initially not a believer in Jesus. We know this because in John chapter 7, in describing Jesus going up to the feast, there's an interaction that goes on between Jesus and his brothers, and they're fighting, arguing. And John offers this comment, even his brothers didn't believe in him. So at 30, 31, 32 years old, however old Jesus was, midway through his earthly ministry, none of his younger brothers were convinced that he was Sane, basically. But we find this brother of Jesus being sought out early on by the Apostle Paul as a confirmation of Paul's apostolic ministry in Galatians chapter 1. Paul goes to James, he says, the brother of our Lord, in verse 19 of Galatians 1. And in Galatians 2 verse 9, James, along with Peter and John, are called pillars of the church. How could someone in a few short years go from not believing in Jesus to becoming a pillar in the church? What changed 
from the days that James was a skeptic in his brother's ministry to becoming one of the most important leaders in the church in Jerusalem who presides over the council in Jerusalem in in Acts chapter 15 and who is the head of the elders in Acts chapter 21. The answer appears to be found in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul enlisting the few specific appearances, the resurrection appearances of our Lord, specifically states that Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, appears to James, his brother. It seems as if Jesus knew that James was destined to be more than an unbeliever and a skeptic. It seems that Jesus, in appearing to James, was commissioning James for a leadership role as a servant of God and of the Lord, the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. The text doesn't tell us, but the fact that James doesn't describe himself as the brother of Jesus, but rather as the servant of Jesus, teaches us at least two important truths. I think the first truth that it teaches us, James doesn't say, James, the brother of Jesus, the son of Mary, and all these famous figures he could have pulled out of his uh, so-called pedigree. I think it shows that this letter is not written by someone pretending to be James. And I mention this because some scholars like to entertain the idea that this letter and a number of the letters in the New Testament are written under false, under false, uh, a nom de plume, a false pretense. Technical term for this is pseudepigraphal. I'll give you a nickel if you can spell that. Think of it this way. If an anonymous author was writing in the name of James, he would not have left off the juicy tidbit that he is the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anything. He would do anything to gain a wider hearing for this uh, false letter written under a false name. So I think the simple identification of James as the servant of Jesus, in fact, ironically, is a mark of its authenticity. But second, and I think more importantly this, not only does it help prove that James is the one who actually wrote this letter, the brother of Jesus, I think it indirectly gives us a Christian definition of family. By suppressing even ignoring for the time being his human connection to our Lord. James is offering us a way to define family connections in our own lives and in the church. James would have likely learned that definition as an unbeliever because of his many interactions with Jesus in which Jesus seemed to stress over and over again that blood family ties weren't nearly as important as being tied to the words and teaching and ministry and mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Gospels, we read about how his younger brothers and mothers were trying to speak with Jesus at one point, and Jesus is unimpressed. If your mother and your brothers and your sisters were trying to talk to you and you were in the house, you'd come to the door. But not Jesus. Instead, 
He's unimpressed. Rather than follow the normal, honorable Jewish custom, Jesus stayed put and looked around the circle of people that were gathered around him and taught that true family ties are not defined by blood, but by obedience to God. Listen to how Luke puts it in his gospel, Luke chapter 8. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Finally, I want to consider briefly what we can learn from James, the servant of Jesus, about living a life as a Christ follower in a hostile world. I want to focus on three lessons. First of all, you can't make it on your own. You can't keep up your Christian faith in a hostile world on your own. Jesus taught that it's a narrow path. That means just one step and you're off to the right. And just one step, and you're off to the left. You require, in order to stay on this narrow way, some essential elements. And the one I want to emphasize this morning is a pastor. James writes as a pastor. He writes as a shepherd. And he's concerned that the the people who are going to read this letter are straying like sheep, which is what sheep do without the shepherd. So he communicates to God's truth to the Christians who were scattered like sheep across the ancient world that they might stay close to the good shepherd, the one that James serves and the one that he wants you to serve. You can't do it on your own. You need a pastor. You need a shepherd. Secondly, the community is more important than your natural family or your blood ties. The first lesson is you need a pastor or a shepherd. Related to this, the second thing is that by downplaying his blood relationship with Jesus and by emphasizing his role as a servant, James is teaching you that your Christian family is just as important, if not more important, than your natural human family. Jesus stresses this over and over in the gospel. Mark 10.30, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. There's that emphasis on a hostile world. And then Jesus concludes, and in the age to come, eternal life. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus isn't advocating hatred in a literal sense. He's a rabbi. He's using an exaggerated hyperbole to prove a point. And what is it? The point is, by comparison, your love for the Lord Jesus Christ needs to loom so large that it almost completely eclipses every other human relationship in your life. 
your Christian family, starting with your Christ, outweighs every other tie that God may give you. And then speaking of a hostile Christian world, speaking of the last days in Luke 21, 16, Jesus promised this, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. What can we learn from James? You can't make it on your own. Your Christian community is just as important, if not more important, than your human family. And finally, third, as an individual, your most important identity, who you are, is as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. What people need to know most about you is this, that you serve God and the Lord. Nothing else is quite as important. Now, servant in the book of James, I've mentioned, is a reference to the character of James as a leader in the early church. It's kind of a technical term. But it's also a term that should describe each and every one of you as followers of Jesus, even to this day, some 20 centuries later. This is not easy. Our day and our age is one in which identities are proliferating like rabbits. Every day you wake up and find out there's a new thing you can be. More and more specific. And I'm talking about gender, and that's just getting the ball rolling. It's increasingly popular for individuals to assert their individual identity over and against everything else. And James is giving you some, some clues in the identity movement, if I can call it that. The clue is this. You may be a lot of things, but nothing is important, is as important as being a servant of Jesus Christ and of God. That is who you are. I want to illustrate this lesson about individual identity before I conclude. Many years ago, a president in a speech made a now famous statement. Maybe you've heard it before. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. In making this statement, the president echoed what was a dominant cultural value in the middle 20th century, which is this, conformity to a larger pattern, adhering to a norm. In other words, I believe this, re this statement resonated so strongly because it seemed to support and even strengthen the dominant understand, dominant understanding of society, the, the common viewpoint of patriotism and what the flag represented. Selfishness, self-centeredness was un-American. Selflessness was the definition, this president was saying, of being a good patriot and a good citizen. The true spirit of America is one in which the individual set aside his or her rights to the greater good of the whole. But times have changed. If we were to adjust that famous quote for our day and age, it might read like this, ask not what you can do for your country, but what your country can do for you. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And I'm not just talking about the United States. Nations rise and nations fall. 
But we brought that American spirit into the church. We are hidebound Americans in the church. Selfish, self-centered, autonomous, individualistic, idolatrous people. We are not servants of Christ. Not in the American church. Uh, we, we do the minimums for sure. A little here and a little there. But Christ's kingdom calls for everything. Your life. Your all. James sees himself, unlike most American Christians, as a servant of God. Everything in his life is oriented towards this lodestar, this north star, this magnetic pole. He's drawn because of his experience with his brother in the resurrection, away from family ties, away from cultural norms, to align himself with God Almighty and God's tie and God's norms. In conclusion, how can we apply this morning's message? First, as I've been emphasizing throughout my sermon this morning, James identifies as Jesus' servant. What about you? Is that the most important thing someone can know about you? There's a question that gets tossed around from time to time. If being Christian were a crime, would there be enough evidence to convict? Would it be unanimous? Tried by a jury of your peers? Guilty as charged. As they looked at the apps on your phone, at your music listening history, as as your your course selections in college, at your circle of friends, at your inner thoughts, if they were available on some sort of printout. How you spent your, your time, it's the new year, your 15 minute breakdown, your, your, your weak inventory of time for the week. Your passions, your affections, your emotions, time spent in the word. Stickers are popular with lots of young people these days, my children included. What kind of stickers do you put on your folder or laptop or water bottle or your car? Tattoos do the same thing. They spell out a person's story. So what identifies you? What's your story? Are you a servant? A doulos of the Lord? For James, that's his story. That's all you need to know about me, he says. Relatedly, how could such a man go through such a change? He witnessed the resurrection of his brother from the dead. And that's amazing. He realized that everything that he'd heard his brother going on and on about was actually true. Talk about a frame shift. Conversion. Such an important moment this was for James that it changed the entire course of his life. Who knows? He might have been on his way to university or to be a rabbi. I don't know. 
community leader, president. Instead, his whole life changed course and he became the most important leader in the first century church, more important than Peter. I believe more important than Paul. Now, I'm a little jealous of James. I wish I could witness the resurrection. You know, it's kind of an excuse for me. If I'm honest, my desire to witness to the resurrection is kind of tied up with the fact that I'm not a servant of the Lord. If only I had witnessed the resurrection, I'd be a much better servant of the Lord. As it is, I only have the Bible. Poor me. Who can blame me for not living a very consistent Christian life? I didn't see Jesus rise from the dead. If God really loved me, he'd show me a resurrection too. Oh, this has the form of godliness and sincerity, doesn't it? But if you scratch it even a little bit, it lacks the substance. These things were written by the witnesses of the resurrection for your benefit. Because by definition, a resurrection can only happen once. And Jesus gave his message to 12 men and sent them, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to record and to proclaim the truth of who he is and what he did. He lived the perfect life that you could never live and that I certainly haven't lived. He died on the cross and shed his precious blood to wash away all your guilt and shame. And he rose with power because death couldn't hold him. And he is now the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That can change someone. If that gets a hold of you, there is no addiction. There is no mental illness. There is no wicked crime, bad habit, or just annoying personality that God cannot totally and utterly transform for his glory and honor. It doesn't mean you won't struggle with all those things as a Christian. You will. Absolutely, you will. But in that struggle and in your weakness and walking in faith, people will see now that is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. In conclusion, James writes to Christians scattered abroad concerning the danger that they are in and losing their faith in a world that's negative towards Jesus Christ. What about you? I suspect some of you are in danger of losing your faith. It's a negative world after all. How could you not be? If you don't feel the danger, I suspect in part you're not living the life that God wants you to live. You're living a safe life. You're hedging your bets. You're, you're only in with one foot. And that's easy to a point. When you confess that Jesus is Lord, it means that you're committed to marching to the beat of a different drummer. You serve him, not the dominant cultural narrative, not your passions, not what's politically correct, not what's socially acceptable, not what your friends think. Your definition of awkward is what God hates, and cool is what God loves. That's what it means to be a Christian. 
you accept because Jesus rose from the dead, essentially, not just the possibility, but in this world, the very likely reality that you will be a social outcast for the rest of your life. This is too much for some of you. But for those who have seen and believe that Jesus is Lord, it's very small. Because Jesus himself would say, what does a profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What would it profit you? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your brother who became your servant and laid aside all other earthly entanglements in his dedication to his new calling, including the production of this remarkable letter which is before us, the words of a pastor to a wayward church scattered abroad and tottering in their faith. We need these words because our witness is dim, our light is dim, the gold has become dim, our repentance is thin, our faith is weak, and we are stuck in our sin. And we need this servant, this pastor, by his example and by his instruction to awaken us from our slumber. So do that work for us, God, by your Holy Spirit through this study in, in James. And may we, be, may we be in class. May we be paying attention in the front row. This we ask in Jesus' name. Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.